Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends here at Books of the Year. We are. There's only two <laughs> of us. How, that's how the podcast works. We are also your friends and we are bringing you the podcast. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We're hand delivering it yes. to your device at this moment. And he's Matt Williams. Yes. And I'm Simon May. Uh, it's nice to be a part of your world. Well, it's, it's a joy to be here every time. And if you uh, if you know people who you think might be interested in hearing uh, a bit of rambly chat about new books, then please tell them about Books of the Year. Take their phone, subscribe them, because the key thing is subscriptions. Yes! Because oh. this doesn't happen for nothing. So, no. Uh, so we have to find people who go, oh, right, you've got lots of subscriptions. So, you know, tell everybody. We need people to subscribe. We need people to review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews really, really help. I mean, I know, I know I sound a bit desperate, but they really do. Yeah, and we're not interested in anything under them. No, 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 only five stars. Uh, we uh, had a great reaction to Charlie's balloon story. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. Genus, would you say Gina Skinner or Gianna? Gina? Uh, I think I've read it as Jenna, but I could be okay. wrong. Okay, well, let's say Jenna Skinner. Uh, says, Charlie is now writing a book based on Callum and his black balloon. This goes back wow. to our very first yes. show with uh, with Robbie Williams. And I read this to, to Robbie, and which he, as I remember, he came out of it saying, oh, I thought it was going to be about me. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, anyway, so Charlie is writing this book uh, based on Callum and his black balloon. He hopes to publish it, uh, make it available to schools and people who work with young people and mental health. And Jenna says, thanks to everyone who reads, listens and shares. So if you missed that, the very first Books of the Year podcast with Linda LaPlante and Robbie Williams. And I read this because one of the things that it's nice, I mean, it's like an occasional thing. And um, we, we've done it recently where we find a top bit of writing from uh, just someone who's unpublished. Maybe it's a pupil, maybe it's a student, maybe it's you because you write stuff. And it, in everything else, it's really good to just be a part of uh, the stuff that's happening and new bits of writing that we should know about. So if you do see something, let us know. Send us an email. That's uh, what we did on our very first show. If you missed it, go back and listen to the Robbie Williams show because there's some great stuff there. Yes, Rachel also emailed to say that the pod I've listened to many times now is the Linda LaPlante interview. So that's from the very first one. She makes me laugh every time. I find it very, very entertaining, especially when she puts on the voices. And she also says, come on, Dr. Goodluck, come up with the dosh. This is a reference to Dr. Goodluck, who got into contact with us to say there's 1.2 million yes. euros waiting with our name on it if only we will supply him with all of our bank details and get back in contact. So far, nothing from Dr. Goodluck. Have, but have we actually given him his bank, our bank details? Uh, well, no, we haven't. I mean, that, that, to be fair, I think I'm, we're just waiting to see how desperate Dr. Goodluck is to give us the 1.2 million euros. I think he needs to send us like a 10% advance. yes. As soon as that happens, then we are releasing the funds. Yeah. If Dr. Goodluck is listening... Yes. If he's a subscriber... Which you'd think he must be, because that's why he sent Why else the would he have got in touch? Yeah, yeah. Then I would like to say, good on you, Dr. Goodluck. Correct. Thank you for sponsoring the arts. Yes. Uh, and our podcast show. <clears throat> Going where a few other people are daring to tread and offering 1.2 million euros for little appreciation at all. All we need to supply are all our banking details. Yeah, but if he wants to deliver the cash, we will go out on tour and hand out some money. Yes, we, we will. We will literally hand tenors to people. Yes, in, in Dr Goodluck's name as well, yes. Uh, Diane in Ely, just want to say how great I think the podcast is and also to tell you about the experience I had in WH Smith in Ely. I went in to buy the Kate Atkinson book with the promise of the free book by Isabel Allende, uh, which I love, by the way, says Diane. Unfortunately, the staff didn't know anything about the free book, so I had to return later in the day, phone in hand, and play them the bit of the podcast where wow. Simon says, if you buy one, the other is free. 
And then Julie gave me the free book. I listened this morning to the Graham Nort, so thank you very much indeed, E. Lee, W.H. Smith, for getting your act together in the end. I, I love the fact that the staff in W.H. Smith and E. Lee were convinced by Simon Mayo on, yeah. the, on the phone. I could say, yeah. Simon says, <laughs> you can have a free Mars bar. Where's my free Ferrari? I don't think they sell them. Do they not? I listened this morning to the Graham Norton episode, after which you mentioned taking the podcast on the road, and I think Ely would be a great location, and hopefully Toppings would be happy to oblige in helping to set up the event. Of course, I'm making the assumption that Simon's experience in Ely earlier in the year was a good one. I certainly enjoyed it, and the cake was very good too. Yeah, I did a little uh, books thing there. So Toppings is a bookshop? Yes, very good. Okay, I'm Really classy. the kind of bookshop you would really love. Sounds like a pizza place, but it's obviously but, not. But it's not. It's not. No. Yeah. All the best for the podcast. I'm looking forward to much happy listening, followed up, of course, by reading as many of the books as I could fit in. There you see, Diane, classy, classy downloader. Very much. Yes, one of our best. Uh, if you want to get in touch, then email uh, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Coming next, Heather Morris. Okay, well, we're delighted to welcome Heather Morris into our Books of the Year podcast studio. Hello, Heather. It's very nice to meet you. Kia ora. Sorry? That's New Zealand for hello. Is it? Or Maori. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. Well, we're, we're, so we're learning something. Well, it's very good. You must be head-spinningly excited uh, off on a world tour and, you know, a best-selling book. And I think it's just wonderful because it's your first book and everyone will be thinking, wow, I could write a best-selling book. Why not? Uh, Give it a go. Uh, Matt is going to describe the yes. cover of the Tattooist. Okay, so this is, uh, well, it's dominated by, of course, the um, the colours of the striped um, uh, uniform worn by um, uh, those that were kept at Auschwitz. And uh, b- below in the background, we can see the, uh, the infamous gate and tower to Auschwitz. But what you probably weren't expecting is the two uh, hands held um, right at the top of the, um, of, of the front cover, the Tattooist of Auschwitz in black and red, based on the powerful true story of Lully Sokolov and Hella Morris's name at the bottom. Um, so that's the uh, that's the book that we're looking at. Just mm-hmm. before we get into the into the pages, uh, Heather, just explain how you came to write this story, because that's an yeah. extraordinary tale too. Absolutely, I was this lucky person who said yes to having a cup of coffee with a friend one day, and she just casually mentioned to me mid sentence. Oh, by the way, I have a friend whose mother has just died and his father has asked their son to find someone he can tell a story to and that person can't be Jewish. She knew I wasn't Jewish. She was because she was a friend of uh, Lully's son. She said, do you want to meet him? I said, well, what's he got to talk about? And she said, I have no idea. And I said, okay, then we'll set it up. And a week later, I knocked on his door. He answered the door and turned around and just walked back inside, leaving me to follow him and his two dogs. So I really wasn't quite sure still what I was going into. And I sat down where he just said, come, sit. He disappeared with the dogs and then came back with a cup of coffee. Now, for the three years that I was spent with Lully, he never once asked me how I liked my coffee and he never made a cup of coffee that was actually suitable for drinking. (laughs) But he sat down and he started talking. He never raised his eyes above the table where we were sitting and he just rambled. It was incoherent. There was nothing in there that I could link to who or what he was. And the mere fact that one of the first words he said to me was, did you know I was a Tatavera? And I looked blankly at him and said, no, I didn't, you know, in all honesty. And I'm part of me saying, yeah, if somebody could tell me what a Tatavera was, I could actually possibly answer this. But that was where his head was at. He was so grief-stricken. 
And he kept saying, how quickly can you tell my story? And I said, well, I need to talk to you some more. I have to be with Gita. You have to hurry up. And he would went and he picked up a photo off the sideboard of Gita and just clutched it to his chest. So for two hours I sat listening to him ramble and he just kept coming back to Gita, Gita, Gita. I fell in love with her the second I saw her. Did you know where I saw her? No, I don't. And so he, it was interesting because he kind of presumed I had knowledge that I didn't. But it was a matter of me getting to a point and saying, I, I think this is enough, okay? You're getting distressed. Can I come back? And he said yes. And I kept coming back. And at what stage did you start to piece this story together? Because the Gita that he's talking about is the woman he fell in love with had recently passed. Yes. Yes. How many meetings did it take before you were starting to sense what the story was and where it was going to go? Look, a good couple of months I was getting all those facts and all those documented clinical statements he was making to me. I'm getting them and I'm seeing that, hey, this man, he's actually living history I'm spending time with. And if I can get him to the point where he's going to actually open up and give me the emotional side to the clinical stories he's telling me, then I could potentially have a lovely story to tell. And here's the funny thing about that moment when he did decide to tell me his story and really tell me the story. It was nearly four or five months into our friendship. And I, I just kept coming back, coming back, sitting and listening to him, drinking his woeful coffee. When we sat down, his two dogs that I mentioned used to always come up to him and give him a tennis ball and he'd just heave it over his shoulder and they'd scamper off it and fight for it. One of these dogs was the size of a small pony. Her name was Tootsie. Who gives a dog the size of a horse the name of Tootsie? <laughs> and the other one was Bam Bam. She was smaller than my cat. Then one day Tootsie came up with the ball in her mouth and she actually came towards Lully where he was sitting and looked at him. And he just casually reached down to take the ball out of her mouth. And she growled at him. And he gave her a smack. Naughty Tootsie, give me the ball. And Tootsie just growled again. And this was quite shocking. I'd never heard Tootsie growl. But then Tootsie turned around and she put her head on my knee. And I reached down and I took the ball out of her mouth. She let it go. I threw it over my shoulder. And she and Bam Bam fought for it and sent a lamp flying. And it was the moment he just looked at me and he went, Ah, oh, my doggies like you. I like you. You can tell my story. And from that moment, it was like flicking a switch. He started getting emotional on me. He started weeping. His hands would shake and he started telling me about the horrors that he had witnessed and seen and been part of. And for the next, I suppose, good three or four months, I sat with him as he unburdened and changed physically in front of me. No longer was he talking about wanting to be with Gita. There were actually times when he'd grab poor Tootsie by the front feet and dance around the lounge room with her. And I was able to witness this amazing transformation of a man who no longer wanted to be with us, mm. who now did. So we started going to movies. We went to coffee shops, to social occasions. I took him home and he had met my family and become part of my family. So this is Lully Sokolov, yes. whose original name is Ludwig Eisenberg. Correct. He'd been married to Gita. He is the tattooist, of course, uh, uh, of the of the story. Um, what, but from everything that you're saying, Heather, 
he had never told anyone. This story says his wife has passed. He's an mm-hmm. old man. He's he's afraid he's not going to last, which is why he wants to tell the story and Absolutely. get you to tell the story quickly. Why had he not told the story before? It's a funny situation that everybody I met in the Jewish community in Melbourne, they all knew who he was. Uh, they all knew Lalita Tatavera. All the, the ladies all loved him and he loved them. But he and Gita had made a pact not to talk about it. Gita never wanted to talk about it ever, except to him. So she didn't even talk with their friends, and they specifically never ever spoke to their son about their time there. Poor Bugger had to learn about his parents by reading my book. But when she died, Lali decided he wanted the world to know about this girl who he had fallen in love with and had loved for six decades. And for him, that was the important part of talking to me. I had to point out to him that you are a significant person in the Holocaust history. To him, it was, I did what I had to do. But then I started getting exactly what it was he had to do. And, you know, you've only got about 20% of what I know in that book. Mm. And did you always think that it was that, that a novel was the right way of telling it? Did you think about making it a, a non-fiction book? No, look, how crazy am I? I had learned actually how to write screenplays. And to me, I only ever saw the story being played out on a screen, big or small. That was an incredible stubbornness on my part that it has taken so long to get this far. But I try and tell myself, well, look, it's all about timing, Heather, and so don't worry about it. The timing's right. So it existed as a screenplay, and he got to read drafts of the screenplay and loved them. A production company in Melbourne optioned it off me, and they had it for about six years, trying to have it made into a film, a feature film. And we're getting nowhere, clearly getting nowhere. And it wasn't until I was uh, visiting my brother and sister-in-law in in San Diego in California one night and we had a little bit too much to drink one night and I'm bemoaning about those people 100 miles up the road in Hollywood who didn't know a good story when it hit them over the head. And my sister-in-law just leant over the table and said, oh, for goodness sake, write the bloody thing as a book and get on with it. It was a light bulb moment. I can't write a book. How do I know how to write a book? Well, I'm not convinced I do. <laughs> well, you clearly can. Um, what's astonishing about this story is if you, if you were to ask people in the street about um, things that are associated with Auschwitz, one of one of the biggest things is the tattoos on yes. on on the, those people's arms. And from what I understand from your book, it has been a source of anecdote, but no more. Before mm. your book, that one of the men responsible for applying those tattoos was Jewish. Yes. And but we knew nothing about him other than anecdote. How astonishing must it have been for you to learn not only that this is true and that but that the the man responsible is sat in front of you with his dogs with the tennis ball but telling you that story. Uh, look the reality of my not being Jewish actually meant that I did not appreciate the significance of mm. it. And I have been beaten up around the head quite a bit by historians and academics. Why didn't you share him? Why didn't you let us know while he was still alive that you had access to this amazing man who we had been trying to find for decades and even thought they knew who he was? And I went, yeah, you were never going to find him. He changed his name. He fled Slovakia. Um, yeah, he didn't want to be found. And yes, that is sort of the, the downside to my not being able to appreciate the significance in the Jewish culture and the Jewish Holocaust culture in particular. 
but I think also it's turned out to be something of a benefit and that I was able to write a story that could be read by anybody. And what's also astonishing about the story is how many different parts of Auschwitz that Lully is is involved in, virtually Mm. all parts of that camp he has some involvement in. And I know that your book has has been fact checked as well. Everything he was telling yes. you, you have then you have then checked the the veracity of those. Absolutely, that was the big thing about him being a privileged prisoner was that freedom of movement, that he could be in any part or of Auschwitz or Birkenau, and not be challenged. And that did give him that capacity to have a relationship with Gita, to be able to run a black market with the Polish villagers who came in, and. He doesn't shy away from the fact that he could be considered, or was, a a privileged prisoner. But he used that to his benefit. When it comes to what you've just said about fact-checking, yes, a considerable sum of money was spent on international researchers who uncovered documents to confirm what he was saying. Or if I didn't get documents, I listened to testimonies of other survivors and got a second piece of evidence from there. And what I'm pretty cranky about is that there have been some significant storylines that I knew that I didn't put in the book because I didn't have that second piece of evidence. And now that the book's out, I'm being contacted from people from many countries giving me what I wanted. (laughs) Uh, We're talking to Heather Morris. The book is The Tattooist of Auschwitz. We'll talk more in a moment. You're listening to Books of the Year. The Tattooist of Auschwitz is new from Heather Morris, and she has her cup of tea. In fact, you might have heard, astute listeners will have heard the cup of tea arriving. About, do, do rewind to find that bit. It's, yeah. it, it's a magical, it's a magical uh, moment. There are some, in the drama which you have reconstructed here, Heather, um, there are some names that will jump out uh, mm. at some readers because we have read about them before. And I should say, when I was at when I was at university, I did a dissertation on Nazi treatment of the Jews, 1933 to 1945. And as such, I read the diaries of Rudolf Hoss. Yes. This, I think that pronunciation is right. He's the commandant of Auschwitz. Chilling, aren't they? Absolutely terrifying because he's so boring and mundane and loves his family and loves his mm. pets. And here is the man responsible for the horror, which mm. part of which you've described here the rest we know and we we fill in the blanks but when he walks into the story very early on I sort of inwardly sort of gasped a little because he was a man who I'd read so much about who sort of is part of the explanation as to how this this happened that a man so ordinary could be responsible for such evil. Yeah um, Lully I recall him saying that he was probably the only senior SAS person who actually introduced himself at no other time to Schwarzhuber or Hilsteck, the other commandants in, in the camps, you know, proclaimed to the prisoners, you know, I am Commandant Schwarzhuber, but just marched out that day and proudly stood there and, uh, and announced who he was. But, of course, that meant nothing to Lully at the time. And he said that the thing that struck him was how plain his uniform was in relationship to the other SS, who Lully actually admired their uniforms the minute he arrived there. Oh, I like the cut of that cloth, because he was all about looking good. Quite a dandy then, really, was he? He was an absolute playboy. He made no bones about that. Love him and leave him kind of character. Absolutely. 
And so to have this man, he said, who stood there in a very plain beige shirt and trousers and proclaim who he was, and he said he didn't need to be wearing the stars and the stripes and the double lightning bolts for you to feel the chill of the man. Yeah. I wondered if you ever thought to yourself, even though you had this astonishing story to tell, spending time in Auschwitz, as I am writing this story, is is horrific. And I, I really wish I was writing another story. Yes and no. Um, there was a point when his unburdening and, and telling me of the tr- really horrible things he'd seen, as I, I said, of which you've got a small percentage of, when that... Um, transference took place between him and I and that was when the guilt and the pain and the trauma that he had witnessed and been part of actually left him and landed on me and it took a little while for me to to realise what was going on in fact it took a colleague to point it out as I suddenly decided I didn't want to go there anymore I didn't want to hear anymore I, I just overloaded and uh, thankfully, a, a wise colleague smacked me around the head and went, oh, it's just transference, Heather, find a way to deal with it and get on with it. Because she was quite right. I had no right to anyway try and own his pain and his guilt for being a survivor and his trauma. That wasn't mine. How dare I even think that I could? I, I do want to ask you about survival because this is something that comes up. Um, I think Lully ad- addresses this in the book as well, but it's certainly a theme that I that dominated my mind after I'd finished reading the book. The the idea of survival is a form of heroism. Mm. There were people who survived and sometimes had to do things that we in regular society would probably look down on, would frown upon, <clears throat> but they were doing it to survive, and that yes. was a form of heroism. Look, it's a form of heroism, and uh, Lully also described it as a form of resistance. These buggers want to kill us all. What's the worst thing we can do to them? We can stay alive. So he even interpreted it that way. You've done the studies how little resistance, given the sheer numbers of people in the camp versus the number of SS that were there, and the resistance was not that huge. There were a couple of um, attempts at it. And so to him, you resist by staying alive. He would not want to be called a hero. He did not see himself as a hero. He saw himself as a man in a position to be able to make a difference occasionally. And so many of those acts of your humanity that he saw carried out by other prisoners, dying, starving prisoners, that's what made him go on. had nothing to do with... Um, his faith, it had nothing to do with the fact that he, in fact, was in love with a girl he was trying to stay alive for. It was all those other people and what they were doing. And one or two of those other incidences have now been confirmed to me that he was part of. And, um, yeah, I love him even more for now having other people come up and write to me and say, I know about that. And everything that you said makes it even more astonishing, as you said at the beginning of our conversation that their son, Gary, had to find out about his parents from your book, including the fact that they had intimate relations while in the camp. Yeah, look, but that's when I've since found out that that's not uncommon because I've met many survivors and their children and none of them wanted to tell their children what they'd endured. I mean, I'm a mom. There's no way I could even consider 
telling my child, looking to his eyes and telling them anything like the horror that they'd survived. And so, yes, that first generation didn't get to know much about their parents. But the second generation are. And we're finding that some of the survivors are wanting to talk to their grandchildren or to perfect strangers like myself. Now, here's a funny little story about Gary, poor Gary, finding out about his um, his parents. I produced a draft of the screenplay and I took it around and I gave it to Lully and Gary was there. We were having coffee and cake. It was his birthday. And Lully opens up the, the wrapping and he gets this draft of a screenplay and he's flipping through it and he's giggling. He's seeing his name and Geeta's name on page after page and he's so excited. And finally Gary reaches over and snatches out of his dad's hands. And he goes, let me have a look, let me have a look. So he's reading it, Lali and I are talking, and then Gary turns to me and says, oh, there's a scene in here you have to take out. I cannot have anything in here that's not true about my parents. I accept that. Show me the scene, and it's gone. Well, he turns and shows me the scene. I have a quick glance at it, turn around and show it to Lali. Lali starts reading it, and Lali's head starts going down. And I look around and go, Lali, is it true? And he just shakes his head, Yes. I said, Lally, do you want me to take it out? And he shakes his head, no. At that point, Gary stood up from the table, smacked his dad over the head and loudly proclaimed, how could you? How could you sleep with my mother before you were married? (laughs) He was reading a scene about them being intimate. It was all too much. He had to go off and get something stronger to drink. So he really slapped his father. I mean, it wasn't just a a playful. playful. No, it was was a a playful playful. whack over the head. But he was shocked. Goodness me. Come on. I, I, He's a man in his 40s, I should point out at this time. I do want to ask you about something you, you mentioned right at the start of this interview, that you said uh, when your friend first approached you about mm. you, you talking to Lully, that Lully had specified he didn't want to be telling his story to um, to someone who was Jewish. Yes. And and that was part of the reason what, why he wanted to... J- just explain to, to us why you think that it was important to him that he should be yeah. telling this story to, to a non-Jewish person. He grilled me about my knowledge of Judaism and the Holocaust and I was embarrassed and ashamed to admit it was pretty pathetic. But to him to be able to talk to somebody who had their, no baggage of their own, that had no family connection to the Holocaust, that could in any way colour the story he wanted to be told, it was paramount to him. There was no if, buts or maybes. And he was delighted to hear that where I grew up, neither the town I lived in or the one nearby even had a synagogue. Um, We did have the little tricky episode to get through, the fact that my mother's maiden name was very, very German. And it was, yeah, can't pick your parents, can you? So, no, it it was uh, essence. Now, I've spoken at many, many Jewish communities, at synagogues in several countries, and only once has one person challenged the notion that he should have had a Jewish person tell his story. And that poor man got shouted down by all the other people in the audience. Lully knew what he was doing. Lully was a smart man. <laughs> he knew not to get the Jew to tell his story. So I've been um, yeah, absolutely embraced by the Jewish community in telling it. What are you going to write next, Heather? Do you know? I absolutely do. I've uh, taken the advance and signed the contract and I'm working on telling the story of the young girl in the book called Silka. Yes, yes. A 16-year-old girl and she was taken into Auschwitz and she survived the brutality of being the concubine of the commandant. And then she survived a further 10 years in a Siberian gulag 
and I have to tell the story how she managed these survivals, given her age, given that she was a female. Lolly was a 25-year-old man, you know, pretty worldly too, given the time. But her story has to be told. And uh, research in both Slovakia, where she lived until she was 84 years of age, and from Moscow, where we've uncovered the gulag, where she met the man that she fell in love with and lived in Slovakia for decades. And we have this uh, other harrowing but beautiful story to be told. Heather Morris is the author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz. And uh, Heather, we appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much indeed for coming in. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And the tea is on us. <laughs> Thank you. Pretty good tea. Is it okay? Yeah, All right. Thanks very much to Heather Morris for coming in. Um, what an astonishing story she has to tell. And I think I think we can say she's 65. Yes, we can. Yes. And to be a debut novelist and have an international best-selling book, quite an astonishing turn. And soon book. to be a big TV series as well. Yes, that's right. Yes, she was explaining how it's going to... I mean, she did... Because she said she'd written a screenplay, so it was obviously uh-huh. always going to head that way. In future episodes of Books of the Year, uh, in fact, our next one, we have a couple of extraordinary bestsellers. Okay, go on. Marcus Zusak. Uh, Bridge of Clay. Yes, now I'm about 100 pages from the end of that and I'm loving it. How much are you loving? I'm loving it quite a lot. I'm very excited about me. I, I, I don't know anything about Marcus. Is this his first? Oh, no, he's done the other book, hasn't he? Did he? Um, book Thief. That was his as well, wasn't it? Yes, which did pretty well. <laughs> yes, you have to I say, and, remember. And, uh, yeah. became a movie. You know, the Book Thief, book thief was... Loved by so many people uh-huh. and had such an original voice narrated by Death. Uh-huh. Um, which So that was an international bestseller. And it's been a long, long time between that and this one. But this is kind of like officially the follow-up, even though it's got nothing to do okay. with, the, with the previous book. So Marcus has obviously been doing fine. Thank you very much indeed. Mm-hmm. But Marcus Zusak with Bridge of Clay, he's going to be with us on the next pod. And he'll be joined by Anthony Horowitz. Wow. Now, so he's rather big. He can't stop writing. This man is like a machine. <laughs> uh, and his new book is The Sentence of Death. So Marcus and Anthony will be on the next uh, Books of it's the Year the podcast. The Sentence is Death, isn't it? As opposed to The Sentence of Death. What did I say? Sentence of Death. Well, I'm just a fool. <laughs> okay, so I'm yes, saying... The Sentence is Death, is which death. is why it's such a good title. Yes. The Sentence of Death. Would no, be not a great sentence. title. Yeah. This is the sentence is death. It is death. And it's got a photograph of Archway uh, Bridge in North London, which is known as Suicide Bridge locally. Really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. So that's what it is. Okay. And it's a very, very striking title. So Anthony and Marcus will be on the next podcast. Also coming up, the, the guys from QI will be on talking about oh, that. Oh, yeah. And their book is called Book of the Year. Okay. So it'll be the book of the year on books of the year. Well, it's almost as if thing? we've made the booking based on that. Levison Wood will be talking about Arabia. Ian Rankin is going to be oh, in talking about his yeah. number one book. You've read That's that as well, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've not read that yet. I can't wait. I was chatting to Ian just a few days ago oh, really? in Cheltenham. Get you. Uh, Lee Child is going to be uh, coming on, uh, and Cressida Cowell and Edward Brook Hitching are going to be talking about the Golden Atlas, and Cressida's going to be talking about the Wizards of Once. Anyway, it's all to come before Christmas. All to come, you see. It's all the big books coming out before Christmas. They're desperate for your Christmas money. And only on Books of the Year. So thank you very much, Deep, for listening. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Knock on their doors. Well done. Another winner. Tell them we said hi. Yes. 